0: Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the your the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. Netsuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one
1: Our Constitution was designed to solve one set of problems and now we've evolved and we have another set of problems. And it doesn't mean we can't fix those problems with the Constitution we have, but it is going to take some work.
0: So it's, it's a great point that you make, though, that times have changed since 1787 or whenever the Constitutional Convention was. You could go to the moon and back in the time it took Thomas Jefferson to get from Philadelphia to Baltimore. Are we trying to fix a system that has been broken in various ways? Or is there a way to maybe address top down rather than, I don't don't know which direction I'm going, but are we just putting a Band-Aid on the problem? And again, I don't know. I'm just asking it because... Because you wrote the book on democracy.
1: No, absolutely, and I—I—I I, I don't know. I—I I wrote a book on democracy. I wouldn't say I wrote the book on democracy, it, it's but, called um, democracy in one book. That's <laughs> okay. I guess I—I I guess I have to own up to that. And it's fact. a
0: great—it's a great book. It's a great history. It's a great listing of the problems and the solutions. And we're just talking about it.
1: Where are you guys right now? Um, I'm in DC. Um, and where you look like you're in a space spaceship of some kind. Yeah, I, um,
0: I'm in the SpaceX Dragon, and <laughs> finally got off that shithole planet.
1: Yeah, thank goodness. Did you
0: call home. Um, well, good luck out there. <laughs> it's gonna be great. Uh, <laughs> well, what have you been uh, other than writing this book? What have you been up to? Are you like uh, writing speeches for for anybody for this election?
1: I have been. I've done a little bit of speech writing, not a lot for the election. Um, but I want to get back into 2020 stuff. We'll see how that goes. And then um, I have been doing a lot of uh, TV writing um, and then the book as a, you know, I never really like researched anything before for a book. Um, and it turns out it takes a lot of time when you don't know something and then you want to learn about it. Yeah, it's a drag. <laughs> yeah, it's nice to know stuff, but it, the process is like, oh, this is why I never did it before because it's very time consuming.
0: I know what you mean. Like, I like writing books just off of my own stories and not having to look anything up. And it's a different experience uh, the other way.
1: Where yeah, you it have turns to- out that's much easier. Yeah. Um, what TV writing are you doing? So, I'm working on a pilot that is, you know, in contention at um, ABC. We'll see how it goes. And uh, it's, it's one of those things where, like, ever since my first book, I've been working on this tv pilot and we've been kind of moving it from network to network and it's always barely alive but um but not dead so one day it'll either be on television or you know that'll that'll be the end of it i guess that's the only two alternatives ultimately for a for a pilot good luck with that and and, and um uh, it's okay
0: obviously we're going to talk about the book and democracy and so on but can we talk a little about speech writing as well
1: sure absolutely
0: i love the topic so i'm excited
1: yeah, that sounds great.
0: Of course, I love to talk about democracy as well. And
1: they're related, so that works nicely.
0: Yes. All right, once again, welcome back to the podcast. David Litt, former speech for, among others, President Barack Obama, and now author of the book Democracy in One Book or Less. And you were previously on the podcast for your last book, Thanks, Obama. Uh, how are you doing, David?
1: Uh, I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. No, no problem. Do you have uh, Do you have coronavirus? Did you get it? I don't have coronavirus, to my knowledge. I guess that's the you know the sixty four thousand dollar question these days, since no one really knows. But um, no, I've been inside for months and months, like most of us. And putting your time to good use, I see. I. I- uh, read your book
0: democracy in one book or less, how it works, why it doesn't and why fixing it is easier than you think. And I am looking forward to discussing it. Like, you know, the topic of democracy and correct me if I'm wrong, seems to have come up a lot in the past 20 years because we were confronted with it head on twice, both. And you bring, of course you bring these examples up both in the 2000 election and the 2016 election where the popular vote and the electoral college didn't agree for the first time since, I
1: believe, 1888. That's right. I think that one of the things that really shocked me when I was researching this book was how different one's experience of America and what American democracy stands for must be depending on how old you are. I'm I'm 33 years old, which by most standards is still a young person. But one of the summer researchers who I worked with on the book, he was 19 when he worked on it. And I had this moment of realizing You know, when he was born of the five presidents of presidential elections, rather, that have happened during his lifetime in two of those. So 40 percent, the people wanted one president and we got a different president. And so that's just the tip of the iceberg. But I think for young people in particular and for all of us who have lived through the last 20 years and watched the erosion of our democratic process, there is this feeling that the things that used to make America America are at risk. They're not gone and we can we can bring them back but they're definitely sliding in the wrong direction.
0: Yeah. And, and, and you bring up several examples where you think, you know, the, the promise of democracy is in question. And I want to talk about all of them. And if there's time, I'd also love to talk to you about your speech writing experience, because I want to be a political speech writer. Now that's going to be my next career. (laughs) And you're going to tell me how on this podcast, but we'll start with democracy and, uh, let's start with, the electoral college which is you know it, it wasn't the first example you brought up in the book um but i i it is the one i think on most people's minds but first let me ask you this if i say to the average person around the world is the united states a democracy they always say yes even though it's technically by the constitution not a democracy it's it's what's called a republic where 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 a a a somewhat tightly held confederation of independent voting bodies that come together to vote for things like a, a president, for instance?
1: Well, I would actually say we're both. I think this is a common uh, rejoinder you're sometimes hearing, and it really worries me where people like me say, we're a democracy, we need to restore the values of our democracy, and some people kind of say, well, actually, we're a republic. That's Those aren't mutually exclusive. So a democracy just means that we elect our leaders, that ultimately we're in charge, Um, you know, I'm not a political scientist, so I'm sure that we could get more into that. But fundamentally, that's what a democracy means. A republic is the way that we're organized. So for example, one type of democracy would be a direct democracy where we all vote on every law. And that's how ancient Athens kind of did it. Um, That didn't work for a variety of reasons. Our founders did not want to do that. And I think it was a wise decision on their part. So they established a republic, a representative republic, where we have representatives who we elect and then they use their judgment and they vote on our behalf and then we re-elect them or we fire them and replace them with someone else. So the idea that democracy, being a democracy and a republic are mutually exclusive, I think that's actually been entered into the bloodstream of the national conversation as a way of saying, oh, so it's okay if we're not really a democracy anymore. I I think nothing could be further from the truth. We have to be both of those things.
0: Right. And I think you can, you can maybe argue there's a a spectrum of democracy. Like, like you give one extreme, which is everybody votes on everything. And, you know, the other extreme is no democracy at all. And we're, we're closer to the, the first extreme. And, and, you know, one of the things that kind of gets in the way of people's thinking about this is the electoral college, which is this idea that we don't really vote for a president. We vote for a slate of electors in our States. And then that elector, that electoral college gets together somehow and votes in December, the actual election for presidency occurs in December, not November. Like many people think it's just the vote for the electors occurs in November. This is carved out in the constitution, which underlines all sorts of other issues about, you know, the constitution, but let's just, let's just focus on this. The, Why is there an electoral college? Why couldn't they just directly
1: vote for president and, and forget the state by state voting? So that we have an electoral college for a variety of reasons, and they're all bad. Um, In the book, I talk about a lot of issues and I try to address them in a nuanced way and say, you know, there really are arguments for and against, and there's unintended consequences. We have to be careful. The electoral college is just dumb. I mean, if somebody, I, I use it as a litmus test. If someone says they know what they're talking about and says that the Electoral College is a good idea, they don't know what they're talking about. And I'll explain why that is. So the Electoral College, we have for a few reasons, but let me start actually with why we don't have it. So the idea that small states might benefit from the Electoral College, like small states benefit in the Senate, because we have a Senate where every state gets two senators, even if you're Wyoming with relatively few people or California with a ton of people. But in the Electoral College, California still has way, way more electoral votes than Wyoming. So small states still, for the most part, get overlooked. Um, Rural areas get overlooked, for the most part, in the electoral college. If you're a rural voter in a rural state, like Kentucky or Arkansas or Vermont, presidential candidates are not knocking down your door. The only thing that matters because of the electoral college are swing states, states that might tip the election one way or the other if the election is really close. And the weird thing about swing states is they are not, designed to favor one party over the other. It's totally random. So right now, the Electoral College favors Trump. In 2012, when I worked for Barack Obama's reelection campaign, the Electoral College actually favored Obama. Um, he could have lost the popular vote probably by about one and a half points and still won the presidency. So, so, so David, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt.
0: So when you say the Electoral College favors someone, you're, suggest, you're saying that they have a buffer of popular votes they could lose, but still win the election. That's exactly right so so why why does it right now favor Trump, for instance? I'm just trying to understand the math?
1: No, I appreciate that. And I will say, um you know we we were talking before we started recording. I am not used to knowing things. This was a, a knowing things book, and so sometimes I like get ahead of my skis a little bit, so please do stop me and like, you know, jump in uh, if i the the whole point of this book was to learn about stuff and talk about it in a way that doesn't sound boring or overly, you know, I'm an expert, and I'm certainly not an expert, so if i start to sound a little too wonky, uh, get in there and stop me. And I appreciate you doing that. All right. Um, If you look at the electoral college right now, a lot of those Midwestern states that put President Trump over the top in 2016 and could theoretically do that again, um, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, those states are states that are disproportionately, um, they have uh, voters who are not college educated and um, voters who are white. And if you look at that group of voters, just demographically, Trump wins a much higher percentage of that group than other groups. And so you have a few states that are specifically skewed toward Trump just because of the demographics. And those states happen to be near the tipping point. And the tipping point is just, if the election came down to one state, which state would it be? This reminds me of, uh, I don't know if you ever read, Isaac Asimov has a short
0: story about this, where he wrote like 50 years ago, where basically they figured, First, they had computers figure out which one state was the only state that should vote to represent everything. And then they put it down to which county, which town. And then finally, there was one household that was the swing household. And so every election was decided by, you know, a computer would pick which household was the swing household. I had no
1: idea about that, but that's becoming really shockingly accurate. Because if you look at um, the, the technology available to modern campaigns, the same way that like you go on your Instagram feed and it can, you get this like creepy set of ads where you're like, how'd they even know I was thinking about that? Um, that same technology can be used to target voters. And so back, you know, let's say 40, 50 years ago, the swing States was most of America, a majority of America. So not every state, but most voters lived in a state that candidates wanted to compete in. And just to support your point I apologize always for interrupting,
0: but I want to, I, you know, your, your book covers a lot of great issues and I want to make sure they, they come out. You mentioned how, I believe when, when you were born, you said how, uh, 23 states, almost half had one Democrat Senator, one Republican Senator. And now it's down to nine, which your, your, um, conclusion is that states have become more polarized, either red or blue, which is, which is why now we do consider states red or blue. We never used to consider them that way.
1: That's exactly right. And states in general and voters have become more about their national party identity and local politics matter less than they used to. It doesn't mean that they don't matter, but it used to be that, for example, I'm originally from New York City. That's where I grew up. Um, You know, New York had uh, Jacob Javits, a Republican. Um, He did not have a lot in common with other Republicans from other parts of the country. He was a lot less conservative than some of them, but he was a New York Republican. You know, we had the Rockefeller Republicans in New York. In the South, you had Democrats like Jim Eastland or Strom Thurmond for a while. Strom Thurmond switched his party affiliation to Republican. They were hardcore segregationists. They were also conservative on economic issues um, for the most part, but they were Democrats because they were Southern Democrats. It was a a different setup. And today, for the most part, a Democratic senator in, um, in New York is similar to one from California. A Republican senator from Ohio is gonna vote almost identically to one from Georgia or Florida or South Carolina, you name it. So there's this uh, kind of mind meld that has happened where national parties have become more important and local quirks, again, they still matter, but the point is that they matter a lot less than they used to. Right. So, so,
0: you know, you made a point about how the, uh, the ostensible reason people uh, argue for an electoral college is because smaller population states can feel like they have more representation in electing a national leader and on a local level, because each state has two senators and that's fixed Wyoming, which has a fraction of the population of California has equal representation in one of the major governing bodies of the, of the U S but it's still, because the the number of electors a state has is the Congressman plus the senators. It's still somewhat, helps the smaller states, right? Have, have a little bit more representation than their population would suggest. Otherwise, you know, and I'm just playing devil's advocate. Otherwise you could say New York, California, and maybe Chicago would form this oligarchy that would elect the president every
1: four years. Well, if you look at it, it is true. Um, and I, I always appreciate a good devil's advocate. So it's was fun. Um, it is true that if you look at it, small states get a tiny, tiny advantage. They punch a little bit above their weight in the electoral college but by so little that it doesn't really make a difference in terms of whose interests matter. So, for example, in the Senate, because that's, that's the perfect example of a place where small states are punching way above their weight, if people in Wyoming care a ton about one issue, that matters a lot more than if people ca- in California care about that issue. In the electoral college, the only thing that really matters is what do people in swing states care about? So you can be small or big, right? New Hampshire is a swing state. W- the preferences of voters in New Hampshire matter a lot to the presidential candidates. Um, uh, Michigan is a much bigger swing state. The preferences of voters in Michigan matter a lot. On the other hand, Wyoming and California, neither of them are paid a lot of attention in presidential years because they're not swing states. So the argument that it's helping small states doesn't really hold up when you look at the math. Now, what is interesting is, because I think the next question then is like, so why do we have the electoral college in the first place if it's not helping the small states? And the answer is, uh, well, there's a few, but one of them, for example, is dirt roads. So when the country started out, the, the roads were obviously terrible. It took Thomas Jefferson once six days to get from uh, Philadelphia to Baltimore. So that gives you a sense of how, how good the roads were, right? And if you had had the election all at once in a big national popular vote, you couldn't have gotten the results in a few weeks or even necessarily a few months. So you had to do the election in multiple stages. So this was partly a logistical issue that we just don't have anymore. Another reason we have the Electoral College is property requirements for voting. And again, we don't have these anymore, but when America started out in most states, you had to have a certain amount of money in order to vote. Now, if every voter counted, states would have been under pressure to lower their property requirements and therefore increase the number of voters that they had. And our founders didn't wanna put pressure on states to loosen up their election restrictions. And then the final reason that we have the Electoral College is slavery because under you you brought this up the electors is the number the number of electors you get is your number of senators plus your number of congressmen from your state or Congress uh, you know members of Congress rather um under the three-fifths compromise in the Constitution which was the compromise that was there to protect slavery and ensure representation in Congress states got credit so to speak for three-fifths of their enslaved population when it came to allocating the number of members of Congress they would get and so that meant that it all they also got credit for their enslaved population when it came to the number of electors they would get. So the Southern states really favored the electoral college. Basically everybody except James Madison demanded an electoral college so that they would get extra representation for the enslaved people who, the, who were in those states. And actually just a quirk of history in the 1800 presidential election when Thomas Jefferson became president, if it had not been for the effect of the Three Fifths Compromise and and the role that slavery played in the Electoral College, um, John Adams actually would have won re-election, and Thomas Jefferson would not have be- become a president. So, and Hamilton would have been totally different. There probably never would have been
0: any Southern president. I think that was their main concern, right? Is that they would figured it would be nonstop Northern presidents that would uh, get rid of slavery, and so they needed
1: some kind of mecha- electoral mechanism to to fix that. I don't know enough to say whether there, you know, other than that one election, um, I think George Washington certainly would have been president. And then from that, from there, I don't know where we would have gone. But I do think there was this dividing line. This is an important thing and it runs through the entire book and more importantly, through our entire political system. Our country was founded where the big dividing line was not partisan. It was regional. So north and south were often on opposite sides of issues and and most importantly, the single most important issue facing America, which was slavery. Um, today, partisanship has replaced region for the most part. So, you know, I live in Washington, D.C. right now. There are almost no Republicans live here other than ones who run the country at the moment. But if you talk to a Republican living in D.C., they're probably going to agree on most issues with a Republican living anywhere else in the country, and same for Democrats, as opposed to saying they believe in representing the interests of D.C. or whatever state they're from. So, again, that replacement of national partisanship over local and regional issues means that our constitution was designed to solve one set of problems. And now we've evolved and we have another set of problems. And it doesn't mean we can't fix those problems with the constitution we have, but it is gonna take some work. So it's it's a great point that you make though, that times have changed since you know,
0: 1787 or whenever the constitutional convention was. Uh, it, it's, as you point out in the book, you could go to the moon and, and back in the time it took Thomas Jefferson to get from Philadelphia to Baltimore. And so obviously we don't need these staged elections. You can argue, I mean, it would be nice if every argument about democracy, like for instance, this discussion about the electoral college didn't have any dividing line at all. So originally it was North versus South South. Now it's Democrat versus Republican. It might've been issue based, you know, over the past 100 years, depending on the, the decade, but I'm wondering. If, if we just get down to political philosophy, what's the best way to govern a country, I wonder if just pure popular vote, not state by state, not any buffer, you not any, you know, bridge in between, if just a pure popular vote would be the best way to not only elect a president, but even to pass our laws. Like you said, you didn't agree with the direct democracy of ancient Athens, but why can't the legislative branch just be a, a Yeah, I'll go online, see what, what issues are up for vote today and vote. And, and, and the idea being it's harder than for lobbyists to campaign for specific issues or to campaign for specific presidents. Like uh, money would pay much, uh, smaller issue in, in, uh, laws.
1: So uh, let's start with the electoral college. I think no question popular vote is, is the thing that makes sense in the electoral college. And again, not because it, it helps one party or the other. I'm a Democrat, but. There are some years when the Electoral College has benefited Democrats. I still think we should get rid of it. When it comes to our specific laws, I do think we need to recognize how complicated government is and how complicated our laws are. So you do need to figure out some way for the details of laws to not be made by, for example, like, I, you know, I, I'd say I have spent the last two years researching democracy. I know more, I would hope, than like your average person on the street about a lot of issues. There's no reason that I should be there crafting our individual laws. Now, and, and I'm just going to give you some examples of like how detailed those laws get. Um, you know, I'm trying to think of, of specifics that I'm using. So here's a good example, right? Like the FAA, um, how they inspect aircraft and the exact rules for how they inspect aircraft. We all want to make sure that our planes don't crash. That's important. But what kind of FAA inspection process is going to help make that happen um, versus How do we make sure that uh, airlines are able to continue to innovate and do all of those things? Um, That's really complicated stuff. And it's good to have people whose full-time job it is to understand it, try to understand it. Now, there are things we need to do to get money out of the process and all of that. But I do think that a direct democracy, you know, be weighing, it it would be a little bit like if you weren't ordering off the menu at a restaurant, but instead you were saying like, okay, I'm going to actually give you a recipe. You know, and like, sometimes you want a chef in the kitchen who, who cooks what you want them to cook, but they do it with the skills that they have. I know that was a very long way of talking about it. Right. No, no. And, and I think this is a really fascinating discussion because I don't know
0: the answer, but you bring it, but your the book, your book brings up many examples where Congress is sort of, I don't want to say corrupt, but sort of dysfunctional in how they, uh, address proposed laws. So for, sometimes they hide them in committee. Sometimes they throw in all these extra amendments that prevent them from getting voted on. Sometimes they have over the years, they've had filibusters and you know, laws have to change in order to almost get Congress to stop stepping on itself. And you solve the problem immediately for the, for many laws. I don't know how many, but you solve the problem immediately. If you just say, Hey, just let everybody vote for this and forget all this, you know, dysfunction from Congress.
1: And you do see certain States, for example, open up um, ballot initiatives. And that can be really helpful, especially with big, broad ideas. So for example, in Florida, they had a law that was, um, it said, if you have ever committed a felony, you can't vote for life in Florida, even if you've done your time. And this was a totally racist law. It came straight out of, um, not even Jim Crow, before Jim Crow, 1868, um, you know, white supremacists in Florida passed this law. And it was it over, uh, was overturned at the ballot box by voters. So, there are instances in which um, direct democracy, when applied carefully and in the right way, absolutely can help because things get entrenched by politicians. Politicians want to keep their own power, and that can be a helpful check on politicians. The flip side of all of that is the way I tend to think about it, you know, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I think Abraham Lincoln was a pretty smart guy. And I, I just always tend to go back to, um and i never remember the i never get the order exactly right but of the people by the people and for the people now that's different than direct democracy it's not about who is participating in every decision it's about who gets to pick our representatives and who those representatives are looking out for so when you look at congress the biggest problem with a lot of the um the rules in congress and a lot of the way that congress works and also the lobbying industry and the influence industry that has been built up around congress is that too many times people are making public policy, but they're not acting in the public interest and they're not even claiming to act in the public interest. So, and I should say, I mean, I am married to a congressional staffer. I know a ton of congressional staffers. They work really hard and they care a lot about these issues and they really want to make America a better place by and large. The challenges, for example, we have lobbying uh, that where the amount of money spent on lobbying has more than doubled in the last 20 years. So, we have this bizarre situation where most people who are paid to make public policy are not actually working for the public. They're working for someone else. Most of the time, that's some sort of corporate interest, but it could be any number of people. I mean, it could be the ACLU, but mostly it's corporations. And when you have the majority of people whose job it is to make policy working for somebody who is not the people, uh, it's not a surprise when the policy that results is so often not what would make sense if you were considering the public interest.
0: Yeah. So, so, uh, so again, I wonder because there's so many competing interests, like there's, there's, you know, issues are sort of divided down party lines. Even if, even if a Congressman or Senator doesn't necessarily believe in issue, they usually vote along party lines because they're trying to balance it with other interests. They have that. They also want other people to vote down party lines. Then you have the lobbying influence. So whoever spends more money on an issue tends to get results. Then you have, um, the incumbent issue, which is that despite the fact that we elect our representatives in the overwhelming number of elections, whoever was already in office stays in office because of nothing other than name recognition. And, uh, I wonder again, if I I agree with you that a lot of laws are too complicated for the average voter, but they also seem to be too complicated for the average person in Congress, to be honest. So I'm wondering again, like, um, what, what's the danger? I wonder if there, uh, there's no way to experiment, obviously, and it's never gonna happen, so this is just theoretical, but what do you think is the danger of direct democracy on even the laws?
1: Well, and again, I wanna make clear, because these terms are so, um, I wanna be precise. I think the danger is total direct democracy. Sometimes direct democracy can be very effective, and we we talked about some ways in which that is. The other um, area where I would add, and this is less of an issue that I write about in the book, because it's mostly about national politics, but local uh, politics and local elections there's been really promising stuff done by bringing citizens together and and people who live in a community and saying okay how do we want our budget to be spent and you know there there was uh, i think some skepticism that that might work but actually there's a definitely a place for that um it's not necessarily the only way to make policy but there should be more of it than we currently have to go back to this issue of total direct democracy the challenge becomes we already, you, you, talk, you described one problem we have in American politics, the polarization we have. Um, we have a system where it's, incumbents have a huge advantage, a variety of issues. But we also have this challenge where it's very hard to do things in people's long-term interests, and it's very hard to con- convey a nuanced idea. I mean, back in my former life as a speechwriter, you always had people pointing out, Bumper sticker slogans tend to do very well, and it's really hard to push back on those. And I think it was Mark Twain who said, you know, a lie can travel halfway, halfway around the world while the truth is putting its shoes on. And there is a challenge of, do we really want every single law to have the same kind of demagoguery that has become associated with our political campaigns? Um, I think ultimately Americans probably wouldn't want that. And the other, the other issue, I mean, I think a perfect example of that actually would be um, as we talk about uh, police reform, right? Which is an issue that really you know, is coming up right now as we're recording, it's incredibly important. And I think it's gonna be on a lot of people's minds for a very long time. The basics of what we need to do as a country are clear. We need to make sure that police can't get away with committing crimes. We need to figure out how to balance public safety with at the same time, not terrorizing communities of color. This seems obvious. The details are more complicated. Um, So sometimes the question is, how do you do the big thing that we all agree needs to get done? But how do you actually pull those levers in a way that makes that happen? And I think, um, you know, ultimately, that's why a a representative republic can work and has worked in many, many cases. I mean, you know, I, I go back through a lot of American history in the book. There's a lot of moments when we have not lived up to the idea of America, but there's also moments when we have, and we've done some extraordinary things. So I'm writing this book from a perspective as someone who really does believe in the idea of America? And I think the question now is how we extend that idea, expand it for more people, and keep it alive when it's under threat. But are are we trying
0: to fix a system that has been broken in various ways, or is there a way to maybe address top down uh, rather than I don't I don't know which direction I'm going, but top down, like for instance, you you gave the stunning example where a law, uh, would in the house would often have to go through what was then the rules committee in order to determine what the rules of it actually being presented to the, to the members of the house in order to be voted on. And that was just so corrupt and, or at least dysfunctional in terms of like passing the laws that govern a country that are, are we just putting a bandaid on the problem? And again, I don't know. I'm just asking it because because you wrote the book on democracy.
1: <laughs> no, absolutely. And I I I don't know. I I wrote a book on democracy. I wouldn't say I wrote the book on democracy, it, but, It's called um, Democracy in One Book. That's <laughs> Okay. I guess I I guess I have to own up to that. And it's thing.
0: a great it's a great book. It's a great history. It's a great uh uh listing of the problems and the solutions and we're just we're just talking about it.
1: Okay. So now now that I've vamped a little bit to try to think about a way to to answer your question because it's a good question. It's a tough question. I would say when you look at the the system in the House, for example, like the Rules Committee. And what I I write about in the book is the way, and this is still true, any bill that goes to the House floor needs to have its own special rule. And that basically means like how much time is allocated for debate, how many people can speak for it, speak against it, all sorts of stuff like that. It used to be that the Rules Committee was independent of the Speaker's office and any other part of the House and was extremely powerful. And so during the beginning of the civil rights era, you had this guy, Judge Smith, who was a Virginian in charge of the Rules Committee and was racist, even by like racist standards. And he just wouldn't let any civil rights bill get a rule passed, which meant it couldn't go to the floor. So he was using a procedural trick to hold up the works. But what then the Speaker of the House, Sam Rayburn, did was take power away from the Rules Committee. Now the Rules Committee is essentially an extension of the Speaker's office. And I think that's an example of figuring out a way to make the system work better, rather than saying, you know, this is just completely not working. We got to break it and start all over. So there are ways we can do that. You brought up the issue of Band-Aids. And I think that, um, you know, I think the body politic is a lot like any other body where the goal ultimately, and I say this as somebody who is like a, a sort of early stage adult where, where you know, there's stuff going on um, like, you know, ever so often my shoulder hurts. And it's like, okay, that's just, that's not going to get fixed, right? That you can improve it, but you're not going backwards. You're not going to get like, uh, you know, you're, you can't be young again. And I think that actually, like, that idea of how do we solve the problems, right? How do we patch things up when we need to? You know, how do we build the plane when we're flying it? Um, democracy is so far from perfect, but it is, you know, to paraphrase Winston Churchill, it's so much better than anything else out there. And the the goal should not be to say, how do we create a perfect democracy that never needs any other patching up? The goal should be to say how do we fix the problems that we have? How do we diagnose and treat the conditions that we're facing in this moment? And you know what? The next generation is gonna have their own set of problems they have to solve. We're, the best we can hope for, but it's a, it's a huge achievement, is to pass along a country that can fix its own problems, not a country without problems.
0: Very interesting. And I, and I, I think I do tend to agree that the Electoral College has served its purpose. Anything that had the original purpose of, A, let's protect slavery, and B, It takes us a long time to get from Philadelphia to Baltimore, which is now (laughs) one train stop from each other on Amtrak. Those are probably outdated systems. So you bring up many other issues and they're all fascinating because it all got me thinking about essentially the roots of the country and the reverence we hold for the constitution and the systems of the country. But you talk about voter reform. And I thought that was very interesting. Maybe you could describe some of the issues cause there were several.
1: To me, the big story of voting in America right now is that we are in a period where voting rights are under attack in a way that they have not been in most Americans lifetimes, unless you can, unless you're old enough to remember the civil rights era clearly. And so, Along almost every dimension, you you see that it is harder to vote. Um, fewer people are even legally allowed to vote. So voting rights have been taken away from more people. And then most of the restrictions on voting are disproportionately affecting black people, brown people, young people. And this is not an accident. Um, it's because those groups have become associated with one of our two political parties. And so in a lot of cases, people are trying to win elections by altering who can vote as opposed to by trying to win over voters and persuade them. And and can I can I um uh there, there I
0: looked up some statistics after reading the book and even though the voter turnout, so let's say let's say we're talking about African Americans. So African Americans represent between twelve and thirteen percent of the adult population. And in both twenty twelve and twenty sixteen, African Americans did represent about um of the voters, but to your point, only about 6% of registered voters are African-Americans. So it is skewed, the actual registration of voters is skewed against the statistics of
1: how many African-Americans should be registered. Sure, I I should make a couple of things clear. So one is that there's no question that there are unregistered voters of all races. And in fact, if you look at Donald Trump, I mean, his campaign could theoretically benefit tremendously by registering voters, because there's his base, which tends to be, um, you know, if you look at his best demographic slice, right, that's white, non-college-educated voters, especially white, male, non-college-educated voters. That's a lot of unregistered Americans. So this is not something that could theoretically benefit one party or the other. The reason you often don't see, in my opinion, the reason you don't see Republicans get excited about registering that group tends to be that once you register a lot of um, people who are not in those higher income brackets, they start to disagree with you about tax cuts for the rich. And one of the kind of common findings is that when voter turnout goes up, it doesn't necessarily mean the left wins more or the right wins more. It does often mean that um, tax policy and generally economic policy stops favoring the rich as much. So the the Republican party, which is organized around this guiding principle of tax cuts for wealthy people, um, that's not necessarily a pool of of unregistered voters they want to tap into. They would, it is easier if you look at just the incentives for them to make registration hard for everybody. Um. All that said, if you look at the way that that America generally works, so you brought up black voters and it is absolutely true. I mean, for example, I worked on the 2012 campaign, um, black voters came out in huge numbers. Uh, you know, same was true in 2008 and has been true before that. And um, black turnout has been on the rise. And I think that's, really a, and this is just my own opinion as a political operative, that's a real testament to the work done in the black community, um, in many cases by the black churches, by a huge number of organizations who have rallied people around this idea of we have to go make our voices heard, we have to vote. But it is much harder to vote for black and brown people than it is for white people. Just to give you one example, in 2012, um, like you said, Uh, voter turnout among black voters was relatively equal to the population as a whole. I think it might've actually been even slightly higher, but black voters on average had to wait 23 minutes to vote and white voters had to wait for 12 minutes to vote. Mm. And so the act of casting a ballot was about twice as difficult just on election day for a black voter as a white voter. And what that means is the cost of voting is higher for some people than others in America. And unfortunately, those costs follow the same, racial and economic patterns that contribute to inequality in so many other ways in American life. So my general view is not that we should force everybody to vote, but it is that voting should be easy for everyone and it should be equally easy for everyone.
0: Yeah, you brought up how in, you know, the early 1800s, or you brought up how in Sweden, as soon as your friend arrived in Sweden,
1: they were able to vote. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I'm not going to do any accents in this little story, but I I will say... So my first book came out, it came out in Italian. So that I got to go on an Italy book tour, which was, uh, you know, highly recommend. Um, that, was, that was definitely one of the uh, exciting things about my first book. And I was in Italy and my Italian editor said, is it true that in America, and I kind of waited because there's all sorts of, of things that you could ask about that. And some of them are great and some of them are not so great. And she said, is it true that in America, people have to register to vote? She was so confused by this idea, you know, the way that like, A lot of people in other countries are like peanut butter. What is it? How does peanut, you know, we don't do peanut butter here. Like registering to vote was this idea that was completely foreign because in so many other democracies, they take your information, which is already in a government database. I mean, the DMV knows where you live. The social security administration knows where you live. Um, There's all sorts of ways to keep track of Americans. And they say, okay, if you live here and you're eligible to vote, you're registered. And if not, you're not. So it's so easy to do. The reason we have voter registration is specifically to keep people out of the electorate, to keep people from voting, rather than to help people vote. And so, so what might be a solution? That actually is one of the easiest solutions available to us as a country. And I tried to focus on the easy stuff in the book. Um, you know, Things where we don't need a constitutional amendment, we don't need you know, Mitch McConnell to have a sudden change of heart. Um, all we need to do is pass a single law. And you could pass one federal law tomorrow, if you could get Congress to do it, or hopefully in 2021, where you would make voter registration automatic nationwide. And what that would mean is we do it exactly the same way they do it in other countries where elections are 100% secure, often run, uh, frankly, much better than ours. Um, You know, Canada does it this way, where you take information that is publicly available, let's say from the driver's license, um, and you automatically register people to vote. And some states do it like that. So Oregon, for example, um, they have automatic voter registration. If you go to the DMV and you change your, and you update your license, they automatically update your voter registration unless you ask them not to. And I don't have the exact numbers in front of me right now, but I think the numbers were like, you know, 250,000 people registered automatically in a very short time because of this law and 100,000 of them voted. And what you're seeing is automatic voter registration works. It's really easy to do and it would just make life easier for so many people. So we ought to do it. I mean this this is, you know, we we talked we started off by talking about the electoral college, getting rid of that is a no-brainer. Another no-brainer is just making voter registration automatic. There's no good reason not to do it.
0: I I I loved your solution on the Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court, you don't normally think of or I don't normally think of as being kind of part of the instrument of democracy, but when you take a step back, it really is. It's the, it's the you know, the third uh branch of government. It's incredibly important in terms of deciding which laws are constitutional and should be upheld and enforced. And, and yet, yet they're not, it's nine people who are not elected and they hold their position for life. And you know, kind of is, is almost a, a, a branch that's anti-democracy because
1: of that. The Supreme court, because it's not accountable to voters can do things that or in theory, can do things unaffected by political pressure. And that's good. Um, in many cases, right? You want a court that will stand up for marginalized interests um, against people who are already politically powerful. The problem can come when the court stops acting independent of politics and starts acting as an extension of politics, but is not accountable to voters. So I I wanna be really careful about this because I think it's important to say that when we talk about the court, the goal should not be a court that just favors laws that I like or a court that just favors laws that anyone likes. The goal should be a court that is able to be independent of politics and making decisions, interpreting the Constitution as best it can. Now, the problem is at points in American history, the court has gotten to a point where it is standing in the way of what people have clearly voted for and want, and that does not really comport with the Constitution and is more partisan than anything else. Um, A good example of this was in the 1860s. The Civil War was challenged in the Supreme Court. And this was the same Supreme Court that had just passed the Dred Scott decision upholding slavery. And there was a real danger that the court in the middle of the Civil War was going to say, actually, you know, this whole war is unconstitutional and throw the entire union into chaos. And so faced with that kind of risk, what Lincoln did was he added justice to the court. So for a while, for a very, very short while, but for a while, we had a 10th Supreme Court justice who was this like totally wacky dude. Named Stephen Field. Um, that's a long story, but anyway, this guy came in from California. I didn't know that. Uh, yeah. this is this is mind blowing. I didn't know. I didn't know this at all. Yeah. So we had ten Supreme Court justices. Very briefly. So I will. My favorite Stephen Field anecdote, by the way, is as a young guy in the Gold Rush in California, he had a special coat made with extra large pockets so that he could shoot people through the pockets without having to take his pistols out of his coat. So he was a little bit of a of an intense guy. He was later charged with murder for something and acquitted while he was a sitting Supreme Court justice an intense person. But anyway, he was also the 10th Supreme Court justice. And um, partly because of the political pressure that they added, the court said, okay, the Civil War, it's constitutional. And we dodged that bullet as a country. I don't know exactly what would have happened to to the cause of the union if the Supreme Court had stood in the way of that. Now, I do think we need to be careful about these things, but at the same time, I think we are now reaching a point where we should consider expanding the court um, in part because we've seen so many shenanigans around trying to pack the court, holding the seat open after um, Justice Scalia died so that um, a Republican could fill that seat instead of a Democrat. There's just all these reasons to feel like the court has gotten more partisan. And uh, I talk about even more of them in the book. And the last uh, the last thing I will say about the court and a way to think about it, um, a, a term that I learned when I was researching that I just found very helpful is veto point, right? So we think about the veto as something the president does. But in a political science sense, a veto point is basically just like, if you think about a bridge guarded by a troll in a fairy tale, that's a veto point, right? The bill has to get over that bridge. And at any point, if they can't make it, they die. And the Supreme Court has been set up now for a variety of reasons. And because of a campaign that goes back decades, it's now a veto point essentially for liberal legislation, but not for conservative legislation. So any Democrat, priority, any democratic priority that passes, is going to have to get through this conservative court that has been set up specifically to find those laws unconstitutional. And that doesn't seem um, at all in keeping with what the court was meant to do.
0: So let's let's, let's walk through your solution, which was um, let's appoint uh, uh, justices for 18-year terms and every two years... Uh, a new justice is appointed. So this kind of ensures nine justices at any given point. And after 18 years, they sort of rotate out while new justices are being appointed all along. And, uh, you know, so that seems interesting. It has a, a term limit aspect. Uh, it, it, you know, I suppose you can make it so that they can't, um, postpone the voting. So if a, if a justice is appointed, they have to be, let's say, voted on within a certain amount of time. I, I don't know. You'd have to figure out how to enforce the every two years thing. But
1: uh, that does seem like an interesting solution. I think it's a great solution. And, and it, it by the way, is not my solution. Like I, Most of the stuff in the book, I, and I try to be very clear about this, I didn't come up with this stuff. Um, what I tried to do was just compile really interesting, smart ideas that other people have come up with and put them all in one place. Um, Gabe Roth, who's a nonpartisan guy, he he founded a nonpartisan organization called Fix the Court, and he has been advocating this idea because the Constitution says every federal judge is appointed for life. I think there's a few, like maybe Admiralty Court, some small number or not. So ninety-nine percent, the vast majority of federal judges are appointed for life, including Supreme Court justices. So you can't say your term limited and then you have to leave the bench entirely. But what Gabe pointed out is they don't say where those justices have to return have to serve rather so you could have a justice serve for 18 years and then once their term is up they rotate down to a lower federal court and someone else steps up whether it's a an existing federal judge or a new nominee and so you could effectively have term limits on the supreme court in a way that does not violate the constitution's uh, clause in article 3 which means that you can't just have term limits in a conventional sense like you do for the president
0: yeah when you when you brought this up in the book and i was also amazed because, uh, I didn't know that, that, that the language could be interpreted in such a way that they're a federal judge for life, but it doesn't say where they have to be a federal judge. And, you know, we always just kind of walk around assuming, oh yeah, of course I know the constitution. I learned it every year from first grade through 12th grade. And it's, it's amazing. If, if, if I were to probably be, if I were to be quizzed on the constitution, I'd probably get most of the answers wrong. And this was, this is an example.
1: Well, and I should say, when we talk about the Constitution, there's there's the document itself, but the idea that the Constitution is just an easy set of rules that tell us what to do in every situation is both an oversimplification and also just not true. So uh, to, to give you one example, we're talking about this solution. I think that my understanding, and I'm not a constitutional scholar, but my understanding is that it would be constitutional. I've talked to people who think it would be, but ultimately the court would end up having to decide that, and they would have to interpret the Constitution as they see fit, and that's part of their um, power, as, you know, as the body that has judicial review, um, although that itself is not in the Constitution. So this stuff is—it's um, it, all more complicated than uh, you know people sometimes like to make it seem. But it's also more interesting than you know you might think. And the other thing that the reason that gives me hope is this is an on, all an ongoing project. There's no, you know, it's not like a like a national treasure type deal where we like turn over the thing on the you know Declaration of Independence and it's like okay here's the answers. There's no easy answers. We all get to be part of solving these problems every single day, that's part of our obligation but also our opportunity as Americans is like, this, is a, this country is a work in progress and so we need to figure out how to reform it. And every American in every generation has had to do that, um, you know, and, and I will say, it's important that we expand that opportunity to as many Americans as possible because for a long time, we shut so many people out of that project and now we need to make sure to bring people in.
0: Yeah, I I agree. And, and you know, your book brings up so many interesting issues. Like you have a section on gerrymandering, how uh, often congressmen are able to stay, uh, keep getting elected and reelected and reelected because they change the, the borders of their district to make sure they get rid of all the Republicans and just keep the Democrats or vice versa. And, uh, you know, there's obviously there's solutions to that, but it, it, it gets, it gets complicated. And it was interesting to see the the history of that. I didn't even realize it's sort of obvious in retrospect, but I didn't even realize it came from Eldridge, uh, Jerry or Gary as, as I apparently as pronounced, I didn't know that either. Uh, and then, um, trying to, I'm trying to like, what, what would you say is the, the next, Trying to look where all my folds are here, <laughs> but uh, what's the next issue that concerns you with democracy?
1: Oh well, uh, you know, where where do we start? Um, but here's what here's what I would generally say, and I do want to make something clear when we talk about gerrymandering, which is like a lot of issues, um, both parties do it because you mentioned Democrats and Republicans. But the way our current system is set up, there's no question that it benefits one party more than the other. And I'm not just saying this because I'm a Democrat. The facts are pretty clear here that gerrymandering, as it currently works works much better for Republican interests than Democratic ones. And I talk about why that is in the book, and some of it is not, frankly, because of any political manipulation. A lot of it's just because Democrats are packed together in cities, Um, you know, more so than Republicans are packed together in suburbs, for example. So um, I think that that generally tends to be a running theme through the book, is that this is not a, a partisan book in the sense of, I believe that a democracy should work for everybody. But right now, a lot of the inequities in our democracy benefit one party more than the other
0: in that um in that vein how do i feel like so i live in new york city and i live in new york state which new york city probably very much like dc is is or feels like a hundred percent democrat and whether i'm democrat or republican how do i how can i make it so that i feel like my vote's important because i sort of feel like everybody just sort of votes in one direction whether i'm
1: with them or against them so New York City is actually a great and and a hopeful example of a place where votes are about to matter more than they did before. Um, it doesn't. There's still a lot we could do around gerrymandering and other issues, but um, l- let's talk about ranked choice voting, which New York just passed. And again, this was a ballot initiative, so uh, you know it goes back to something else we were talking about, which is people being able to make some laws about how they govern themselves for themselves. Which I think is a good example of how that can work well. Ranked choice voting basically means starting in 2021 in New York, when you go to vote in a local election, and I believe in a primary election, although this is up to the parties to some extent, you aren't going to just pick one candidate. You will say, okay, let's say there's five candidates. You rank them one through five. If your first choice comes in fifth, then your second choice gets added to the total and you keep going through this process. And there's all sorts of good explainers and I do one in the book as well. But the, the point here is that you don't just have one preference, you say, who's my second choice? Who's my third choice? Who's my fourth choice? And so what that does is, it means that the odds of your vote mattering ultimately in the final contest between the two top vote getters is basically hundred percent. And that's huge for our democracy. It means that when you go into the voting booth and and cast a ballot, it's gonna matter a lot more. I mean, we're, we're recording this the day after I went and voted in DC where my vote really does not matter but with ranked choice voting it would matter at least a lot more in local elections. Um and then this is unrelated but we should make DC a state so that my vote and you know hundreds of thousands of other people's votes around here matter in national elections as well.
0: Yeah, that's it's interesting the whole uh statehood issue and how that uh how related that was to the history of democracy in this country. It was very interesting. Um there was uh oh so this this has bothered me lately about democracy in the United States, let's say right now, I want to run for president. So I want to form the James party and I'm going to run for president. It should be the case that, okay, I can, but because of state by state laws, it really is impossible for me to get on the ballot. I'd have to run at this point, it would be too late for me to get on the ballot. It would require too much money, too many, too many employees, too many signatures on, on petitions. I would have to be run as a writing candidate and there's making it basically zero chance of winning. Not that there's any chance anyway, for a third party candidate, but there'd be even less than that chance. So wouldn't a democracy allow like Republicans and Democrats are not in the constitution. It's just became this artificial construct that we created. Can we just get rid of that and and get rid of all the, the standards in order to just have two, so that we don't have just
1: two parties that we're voting for. Well, I think the way that you describe it makes a lot of uh, is a good way to describe it. Actually, we did not originally have a two party system, and it kind of developed. And the reason that it developed, therefore, is that it ultimately was more effective um, for for voters in, in either party than to have sort of a, a hodgepodge. And that's partly because of the way that our system works, as opposed to a parliamentary democracy um, like they have in England or um, in in Italy or you know a number of other countries, where we have one president. So that president has to come from it has to form a coalition, and that coalition ends up being a party. Where I think third parties have a really bright future because of the ranked-choice voting we just talked about is in um, local elections and, to some extent, congressional elections. So actually, to plug someone else's book for a second, um, there's a political scientist named Lee Drutman who I talk about when I talk about campaign finance and I, I interviewed. But he just wrote a book called Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop. And I think he, he talks about ranked-choice voting as... A way of saying okay, so let's say you, you let's say um, James, you're not running for president, but you're running for uh, Congress, you're running for city council. You can run under your own banner, and because of ranked choice voting, somebody can say, well, my first choice is the Democrat, but if the Democrat doesn't win, then rather than just have the Republican win, I want James to win. And so sometimes you might be the consensus candidate, and people would come together and support you, or you know, you could see a situation where somebody says, well, I'm the democratic socialist running in this very, very blue area. So I'm gonna run against a more corporate backed Democrat or a more establishment Democrat or however you wanna call it. And that ends up being the real election. So there's all sorts of different ways we can expand the options available to people at a local level. And that will ultimately trickle up and affect what national parties are doing. Um, but I do, I do think the the place to start would not be the presidency, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, but it's interesting though, like in the democratic primaries, uh, in a lot of polls, you know, the, the, the front runner changed, let's say from Bernie Sanders to Joe Biden to, uh, uh to whoever. And, but a lot of the, at different times during these polls, a lot of the, the, winner on the second choice was often Andrew Yang and, you know, it would have made a big difference. You know, he was eliminated fairly early on or, or sort of in the middle, but it probably would have made a big di- rank choice voting would have made a big difference for his candidacy as opposed to many of the others.
1: I think in general, ranked choice voting is helpful for candidates who are appealing to people, but people say, I don't know that I want to throw away my vote on someone I don't think is going to win. Because that is the the truth of American politics right now is we have a two-party system, you know, or even in a primary, there is a front runner and then a challenger. And, you know, maybe a third person who's kind of in the mix. If you're not voting for one of those people, you're essentially wasting your vote. Now, you you can do that because you want to express your opinion, but it's not actually doing anything to affect the outcome. If you have something like ranked choice voting, it does create a system where you know that you don't have to choose between who you want to vote for, uh, who you think would be the rest best representative and who you think has a chance because everybody has a chance. And so that makes a big difference. And I think then it changes the way those campaigns are covered. So right now, coverage only goes to one candidate, maybe you know, two or three candidates. Um, Under ranked choice voting, news organizations would make a different set of decisions about who's viable and who's not. So I don't know who would win in that kind of circumstance, but I do know that it would give more people a reason to show up and say, I get to vote for my top choice and I don't have to worry about throwing away my vote. And I think in the end, what that does is drive up turnout and it increases engagement in our democracy. And so regardless of who you want to win, I think that's a good thing. I agree. And I, and, you know, I think there are so many, this is such a fascinating
0: subject really because- the United States through its history has often been a model for the constitutions of many other governments. And, you know, it's good and healthy, I think, to question both the history of our democracy, the, the roots of it, what, what problems may still exist, what the solutions are. I think you do such a great job of that. And, and, you know, obviously you have, you're, a, you're a speech writer. You have a very great writing style. You tell the stories great. And it's, I was, I was riveted throughout, the whole this whole thing. I'm I'm curious. I I also recently finished a book, um, These Truths by Jill Lepore. Uh, it's a great book about American history. If you haven't checked it out, so I kind of read this right after that. So I was fueled by my questions from that when I jumped into your book. So it was it was a good compliment. And um, but I do want to ask you, what's the, what's the essence of a good speech? R- Barack Obama was known for giving such excellent speeches. You were a speechwriter for Obama. What's Tell tell me the secrets of a good speech. Either that that you learned organically, or you learned from Obama, or you've learned since then. How would if I if you were to write a speech, what would you start thinking about?
1: Well, I would say I learned that the secret of a really good speech is to have Barack, Barack Obama uh, edit it and help write it and then deliver it. That really that really helps. If you can get if you can do that, um, you're you're uh, you're gonna be uh, writing some excellent speeches.
0: I, okay. Well, so so let me steal, man, your ability here, which is <laughs> tr- how would you go about? just as professionally, how would you go about writing a speech for Donald Trump?
1: Well, you know, it's, I get that question a lot. And honestly, and I say this and not just to dodge, um, I wouldn't. And the reason is not just because I think Trump is awful. It's also because ultimately what makes a good speech is there has it has to be rooted in something real and true, um, right? The point is not just to say the words, the point is to change something. You want to, you want to change people's attitude. You want to change their behavior. So you have to know what you wanna change and it has to be grounded in, in some sort of objective truth. And then also um, as a speechwriter, you do have to fundamentally agree with the person you're writing for, not necessarily about every little thing, but you know, I, I remember in 2012, people said, asked me, oh, well, if Mitt Romney wins, do you stay and write speeches for him? And not only would he not have wanted me to do that and I wouldn't have wanted to do that, but I wouldn't have been able to do a good job. And it's not because I think Mitt Romney is a bad person. Um, I think he's done a lot recently to, to demonstrate that he is a pretty good person, but we just didn't agree about a lot of things. And so you need to fundamentally be on the same page about what you want to change with the person you're writing for. I think that's an important part of speech writing. So, so, okay. So
0: let's say there's candidate X that you largely agree with, uh, Democrat or Republican. And you know, we're now you're thinking to yourself, okay, speech writing one oh one, what, what are the basic building blocks? that I start with, what's, what's this, do you tell a story? Do you, do you structure it like a story? Do you structure it around a, one theme, three themes? Is repetition important? Like what are, the, what are the elements of the trade?
1: So I would start with this, this big question. I kind of alluded to it earlier, which is what do we wanna change, right? When I was writing at the White House, if we said, well, what do we want the speech to look like? Um, that almost always got us into trouble. If we said, what do we want the world to look like after the speech? That gets everyone moving in the right direction, and it also means that once everyone's agreed on that, it's easy to know what to put in, but more importantly, what to take out, which is really the essence of good writing. You know, I say this having written a book that was like, you know, something like an extra 100, 200 pages, and then I had to take out a lot of, you know, a lot of good stuff too, but it didn't belong in the book. And same with speeches. If it doesn't belong, you have to take it out. And um, so, th- so that's so I would point to those two things. What do you want the world to look like when the speech is done, and therefore, what can you take out? And then the other thing I would say is, you mentioned storytelling, and I do think the more you can make arguments, but construct them as stories, um, the more you can hold people's attention. So, um, you know, I I thought about that when I've written books, I thought about it when I'm writing speeches. And when I was at the White House, one of the most uh, exciting and inspiring things I got to do was not actually to sit with the president and talk about his story, although that was obviously incredibly cool. Um, It was to, call someone up on the phone and say, hey, I read this article, Um, you know, you're for, let's say with the minimum wage, you're a business owner who pays your employees more than the minimum wage because when you were growing up, you had a bunch of minimum wage jobs and you understood that it's really hard to make ends meet on minimum wage. Um, Tell me about your life, tell me about that. And then a couple of days later, that person would, unbeknownst to them, hear their story from the president of the United States. And that makes that case so much more effectively than just saying the words. Um, you know, you need to know the argument, but you also need to know the story. Um, I think, you know, often in a speech, uh, you, you look at it and if it's not satisfying, it's because one of those two things is missing. It doesn't have a good argument or it doesn't have a good story. And then what, what's the role of, you know, kind of these, uh, speech techniques like,
0: uh, you know how, so Ted Sorensen, who was a speechwriter for John F. Kennedy, he has that one line that stands out, you know, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. I forgot what that's called, like an an, an anaphorism, something like that. What's the use of repetition of these kind of classic speech techniques of that one quote that rises above the rest? You know, I have a dream or you have nothing to fear, but fear itself.
1: So I will say you gotta be calm. You gotta be careful rather. Um, I was gonna say you have to be complicated. I think we're all complicated. You have to be careful with that kind of thing. Um, because lots of us would love to sound like Martin Luther King or John F. Kennedy, but there's a reason that they were Martin Luther King and John F. Kennedy respectively. I mean, that's a hard thing to do. And so every so often, you know, I'll watch like a celebrity or a CEO and they give a big soaring line and it falls flat and you think, okay, they are clearly in their head. They're like, oh, I sound like Martin Luther King. You're like, dude, you do not sound like Martin Luther King. Um, So you, you have to meet the moment in the right way. But I think what everyone can take from all of that is that you mentioned repetition. And to some extent, what you described, um, I I don't remember the rhetorical name for it either, but the kind of ask not what your country can do for you, construction of a line. These are just ways of getting um, ideas and words to stick in people's heads. I think a great way to think about it is like a good country song or a song from a Broadway musical will often take the same idea or the same line and it'll repeat it at intervals, but with maybe a twist each time and kind of develop the idea. And a lot of that is because a listener rather than a reader can't go back. So if you're reading something that I write and it's a little confusing, then you can go back and double check it. Or if there was some idea and you kind of liked it, you can always go back and say, what was that idea? I really liked that idea. In a speech, if you're sitting there in the audience, you don't get to go backwards. So you need to make sure that you have some way of layering in the central idea of your speech so that people listen to it. And then right when they're about to forget what it exactly was that you were saying, you say it again. Um, I think that can be very, very important. And when you overlook that, um, you know, the audience notices. So, and, and in, in your acknowledgments for this book, uh, you thanked
0: Ilana Glazer, who's a comedian and, and what, what, what's the role of
1: comedy and humor in,
0: in speech writing? Why, how did she help you write this book? (laughs)
1: Well, so, uh, Abby and Alana from Broad City and I are, we worked together on a TV show kind of loosely based on my last book. Um, and really ever since that book came out and we're kind of working it through the the TV writing process, but it's been really fun to get to write this whole new medium, which is, you know, I've never written a television script before. And so they've kind of been like the, uh, you know, the kind of comedy, uh, I was going to say Godfathers, but that's, not you know, godparents. It doesn't have the same mob connotation. I don't know, yeah. whatever you would call it. The like sort of comedy babysitters through this process, and it's been really interesting um, and learning about story and dialogue and all of these things in a completely different way. So that's been really fun. And I think it uh, the, the the nice thing about doing something like that is every time you write in a new medium, it makes you better at whatever you were doing before. So I think the experience I've had writing a script makes me a better speechwriter. And the experience I had writing a speechwriter as a speechwriter makes me better at writing books and so on and so forth. So it is a chance to kind of stretch these new muscles and try new things. And I think it's ultimately always a chance to figure out how do you use humor as some way of getting people to pay attention to to this important idea? Because the battle for people's attention is fiercer than ever right now. So sometimes just being funny is not just pleasant, but it's also a way of getting people to, to notice that you have something to say. So I, I hope this book does that, but also, you know, I've gotten to do it in a bunch of different varieties of ways. And hopefully, uh, you know, uh, my, my batting average is pretty good. We'll see. Well, what,
0: what would you say is one thing you've learned about, um,
1: comedy writing
0: or, or, or comedy slash script writing that kind of really stuck with you that you remember?
1: Um, I noticed this both when I've been writing um, for characters and then also when we had comedy writers who would uh, pinch hit and write jokes for President Obama for us. Um, Attitude is really important. So a lot of jokes, if you watch, you know, pick a a show you love, like a, a comedy you love, and a lot of the time the jokes are really about attitude and about reaction as opposed to being about a series of funny words on a page. And I come from, you know, I, I edited a humor magazine in college and then I went into speech writing. So these are all, they're, There's um, they're very like wordy media. Um, you know, the, the the written word is very important. And generally speaking, politicians don't have the same range of attitudes and emotions that are available to characters in a show. And so sometimes the best kind of joke is not a carefully worded construction that you have to go back and reread. It's just a moment where an attitude Fits perfectly, and that's something I try to think about. Um, you know, especially when I'm writing something now that is meant to be listened to or watched rather than read.
0: Well, uh, David Lit, uh, former speechwriter for President Obama, author of the previous New York Times bestselling book, uh, "Thanks, Obama," and now the author of the brand new book, "Democracy in One Book or Less," uh, and the subtitle is "How It Works, Why It Doesn't, and Why Fixing It Is Easier Than You Think." I really do think this book is, is really important. People should take the time to understand the history of the, the, the government we live in, the political structure we live in, how it works, how to think about it, because everybody argues about it, but nobody really thinks about it. And I think this is a a good place to, to, to learn enough. So you can think about it. And I I really was educational and thought-provoking and got me thinking about a lot of topics. So I'm glad you wrote it and thanks for once again coming on on the podcast. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much for having me back. This was fun.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And um when's your next book? What are you doing next? Oh, are goodness. you going to do the TV show next? <laughs> but uh, after that?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I mean the the only thing I know in the short term is that I would like to figure out how to be helpful in uh 2020 because I think um whatever we're all doing next uh 2020, you know, November 2020 is going to be a very important thing for making sure things go better than they're going right now. Do you think you'll write some speeches for the Democratic campaign? Um, I have no idea. I mean, they have, you know, the speech writing is a full-time job and I'm not uh, a full-time speech writer these days. But I do think, um, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is that all of us have some obligation to figure out how we can help. And I I am hoping to practice what I preach a little bit.
0: You know, here's an idea for you, just randomly. Um, You should do a podcast about speeches where each episode is a different speech from history. Let's say it's, George Washington's last speech as president or the, I have a dream speech or Robert F Kennedy on, you know, in April, 1968, uh, uh, the, the day Martin Luther King was assassinated with such a beautiful speech and just analyze the good, the bad and ugly of each speech. <laughs> like I know I would be obsessed with a podcast like that, but you don't, and it doesn't even have to be a podcast. You could do it on something like genius.com where you post a speech mm. and then annotate, annotate it. And, um, I don't know. I would just like, I would be, uh, totally obsessed with a, a site or podcast like that, but that's just me.
1: That, that's a good idea. I, okay. I've got my next project. This is Excellent. good. <laughs> well, thanks again. Appreciate right, it. Thanks, James.
0: You seek the key.